Ghost uh, when Pastor Ben was praying. I could have swore he was going in a tunnel and out of the tunnel. I, I don't know if that happened or not, but uh, it sure sounded that way, so not sure what happened there. We were going to start our uh, series in First Peter this morning, but recent events led me to believe what we needed was a different message this morning. And this past week I've been inundated with emails and calls and texts about the future of our country. And you may have noticed last week a bit of turmoil in our nation's capital. I don't know if you guys noticed that or not. Millions of Americans marched to Washington in the hope for one outcome. And while there were many others in the country, we're hoping for an exact opposite protests became unruly at one point, and both sides of the political spectrum have been quick to point fingers at the other side. Some have looked at the evidence as absolute proof about their convictions about the character and morality of those on the opposite side of the political spectrum. Others have looked at the same exact evidence and come to a completely different conclusion. And the result has been an ever-expanding divide in this country that seems to be increasing with every election that we have. And as I mentioned earlier, there are some who watch the events of the certification of electors, and they watched with great joy. They believe that the election results confirm what is needed in America to move forward, while others, looking at those same exact results, have come to a far different conclusion. They believe that the America that they love and hope for would be there for their children and their grandchildren may be lost forever. Amazingly, both have viewed the same results and come to entirely different conclusions. And this has been expressed in a vitriol of scathing rebuke of each other's conclusions in the media and on social media. So much so that many have opted to remove themselves from those sources of news and social media platforms for good. Let me add that I've also seen many good examples of Christians expressing themselves in a way that has been productive, to keep dialogue open, conversations edifying, and they have been a powerful testimony of your commitment to honor God and but unfortunately, with each passing day, it seems like this may be becoming the exception instead of the rule. In many respects, it's been deeply troubling to read and listen to expressions from believers. Both sides, convinced of their moral and ethical superiority in the debate, have used Jesus Christ to bludgeon to support their position, often against other believers. So convinced they are that there can be no other conclusion than the one they have espoused, they seem to be completely oblivious to the carnage that's being left in the wake behind them. Believing they are justified in their responses that Christ is on their side, they have forgotten the law of Christ. The law of Christ, my friends, is love. Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, we can find that in Matthew 22, 39, John 13, 34. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's love. Specifically, it's loving your neighbor as yourself. And Paul tells us in Romans 13, 10 that when we do that, when we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
And when we love our neighbors as ourselves, we fulfill the law of Christ. No matter how right we believe we are, if we have forgotten the love of our neighbor, we're now in danger of neglecting the second greatest commandment. I fear that many believers will look back on this time, a time when our emotions are running high and perhaps even clouding our judgment and they'll have to wrestle in their own hearts whether they acted with love towards their neighbor or not. And since only God can judge the intentions of the heart, we are all better served if we leave that to him as each one of us will stand before God for our, our thoughts and our intentions and our actions. The question then becomes, how have so many believers gotten to this point? How have we let this become a source of division in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters? And I believe that the answer is that ancient foe of humanity, pride. So today I want to take a look at a man who knew a little bit about what it was like to battle with pride, and that was the Apostle Paul. So would you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you're not there already? We want to look at verses 7. But before we do, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you, Lord, for your grace. I thank you for this congregation. And I, Lord, ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to your wonderful truth. So, Father, bless our time together. Be in our midst here today. We ask in Christ's name. Now, we, before we get to our text, back in my 20s, not back in the 20s, I'm not quite that old, before I knew Christ as my Savior, I remember a song called Every Rose Has Its Thorn. Now, the gist of this song was that no matter how much you love one another, guess what? At times, you're going to hurt each other. And as wonderful and as a loving relationship can be, even Christian relationships, we can at times fail to love each other as we should. Usually pride is involved somewhere in the equation, and quite frankly, it's usually dispersed on both sides of the equation. But God has a way of correcting those pride issues in our heart, doesn't he? He has a way of interjecting someone or something into our lives that reminds us that we are out of step with his word. So let's look at how that played out in the Apostle Paul's life, shall we? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We pick it up in verse 1. Paul writes, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So some have begun, let me give you a background here, some have begun to question the authority that Paul has, and thus throughout this letter, really beginning at about chapter 11 up to this point, he's been forced to defend himself repeatedly. They've questioned his leadership. They've questioned his meekness. They've accused him of being weak. They've questioned his speech. They've questioned his knowledge. They've questioned his motivations, his character, and they've even painted him as foolish. But despite his desire not to do so in verses 1 through 6, he now seeks to answer those charges by sharing something very significant that happened in his life. And so we read in verses 2 through 4, 
He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, Paul's obviously referring to himself here, and he describes a vision 14 years earlier in which he was given a glimpse of the third heaven. Now, we know from Scripture that the first heaven is our atmosphere, the second heaven is outer space, and the third heaven is the abode of God. Later in verse 4, he calls this third heaven paradise. He does not know whether it was in body or out of body, but he describes being caught up, which incidentally is the same word that we have for rapture, caught up. And the apostle describes that while in this paradise, he heard and he saw things that no human being had ever seen on this side of glory. And he tells us he heard words which he's not permitted to speak. And then in verse 5, he says, On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weakness. And he explains that being privileged to see and hear such wondrous things could have been a great source of pride for Paul. Certainly sharing what he had seen could have been a powerful testimony for Paul, maybe something similar to what Peter, James, and John saw at the Transfiguration, right? Just not many people had ever seen that. How many in the people of the world in the world could say they've witnessed anything even close to that? And yet Paul makes a very interesting statement, doesn't he? He says, I will not boast except in my weakness. And that indicates to us that the apostle Paul was not immune from the damaging effects of pride in his own life. And we know from other texts that this was a constant battle for him, as it continues to be for many of us as well. Well, in verse 6, he says, For I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Okay, what does he say? Could Paul have shared this amazing experience and been speaking absolute truth? The answer is yes. He certainly could have, but he chose not to do so. Why? Why, after all these personal attacks of his character and his leadership and his motivation and his integrity, why does he just share the truth? Why does he just put it out there that he's seen this marvelous thing? The answer, Paul doesn't want them to make up their minds about him based on these accusations, but rather on the totality of his ministry to them. He doesn't want them to just, he doesn't want to tell them about this and then this either be fodder for more accusations or have people judge him just based on this one event. He wants them to look at the totality of his entire ministry to them and say, judge me on my character here, not here. Judge me on my integrity here, not here. He recognizes his own battles with pride. 
and how susceptible he would be to use the incredible gifts God has given him as a means of pridefulness. And the reason he understands this so well is because God has given him a thorn in the flesh. Twice in this verse, look at verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Notice again, to keep me from exalting myself. Do you think that Paul understands how susceptible he is to pride? What was this thorn in the flesh? Paul calls it a messenger from Satan. Some speculate that it was a problem with his eyes that he refers to in later epistles. Others believe it's more of a spiritual issue. And here's where the, the original language, the words help us a little bit. The word is angelos or angel, and it means messenger. And notice he uses the word torment. That word torment repeatedly through the New, New Testament refers to treating bad or being treated badly by others. Which leads me to believe, and, and many others also, that this is an actual person who's causing Paul quite a bit of grief. Perhaps he's following Paul around the country, attempting to, under, to undermine his ministry at every stop. Whatever the case, it's certain that this thorn was involved somehow in the charges against Paul uh, that were being laid against him in Corinth. And for that reason, again, from the text, to keep Paul from exalting himself. And clearly, although from Satan, God is the one who's the ultimate cause of this. And the effect was very disruptive for the church, and it brought Paul to his knees in humility. Which brings us to our first point this morning, and we find that in verse 8. Concerning this, Paul writes, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Our first point here, my friends, is that when we're battling with pride, the very first the, what battles with pride should lead us first to prayer. Battles with pride should lead us first to prayer. Paul recognizes that this battle is a result of pridefulness, but still deeply hurt by the effect it's having on the church. He asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn. I wonder how many of us today, when we realize our own prideful actions, immediately rush to the Lord in prayer like Paul. Because far too often what I typically see in the world today is an immediate rush to justify our own actions. I see this quite a bit in marital conflict where one spouse justifies their actions as appropriate based on the previous actions of their spouse. Can I remind you, beloved, that, there, that we are never justified in our sinful responses because of the sin of another against us? Especially, in, and listen carefully here, especially if my response is unloving in any way or falls short of the law of Christ, which is love. my sinful response on another. They're accountable for their sin. I'm accountable for mine. I'm 
not absolved of my absolved of my accountability. First Corinthians three tells us right that each one's works will be evident as it passes through the fire. And I don't believe those are just physical works. I think those are also our thoughts and our intentions and our actions. Well, as I talked about in the beginning, we need to be mindful as we navigate these turbulent waters of trying times such as these. It's very easy, my friends, to see the speck of pridefulness in my brother's eye and to miss the plank in our own. It's a warning to us all about how deceptive pride can be in our hearts. Secondly, notice how Paul's first response in prayer was not to root out the pridefulness in his own heart, but what? Just take this thorn away, please. Just make this go away. Paul asked repeatedly, in fact, three times that the Lord would deliver him from his thorn. Now later, Paul gets his answer for his prayer, doesn't he? But I don't think it's the one he was expecting. But I can tell you all, thank God for unanswered prayers. I think that's another song, actually, isn't it? Not a Garth Brooks song or something. I, I, honestly, I'm not trying to go through a Spotify top 40 here. But when I say unanswered, I mean answered the way that we requested. Where God did certainly answer, and it would be would just it's just a far different response than what the way He thought He would answer. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul was accustomed to many of his prayers being answered, just like you and I are. But it always seems to stun us when God either decides to delay his answer or it's completely different from what we thought it would be. Maybe we're just too accustomed to God being so gracious that we're stunned when something we want so badly is answered by God in a way that we cannot and I think that's how many Americans maybe felt after the results of this last election. If your candidate was not the recognized winner, then maybe you struggled with why God would have allowed this to happen. But I want to remind you that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his plans are higher than ours. And again, let's be very careful as we guard our own hearts. We don't let pride even impugn the character of God for the way that he has responded. He is sovereign. He is just. He is perfectly righteous. And when God answers our prayers differently than we expect, let us search our own hearts first and ask to glean from his answer what he wants us to learn and to glean from his response. There are many possible reasons for God's response to Paul. Perhaps Paul would have continued traveling down that slippery slope of pride and maybe did some real damage instead of good in the ministry of Corinth. Maybe if God had taken the thorn from Paul's ministry, others in the church would not have grown in sanctification because of Paul's pride or perhaps their own. And I know it can be difficult stand at the time, but I thank God for his answered prayers, my friends. I, I thank God that he answered.
answers them according to his sovereign will and not my sin taking. I hate to admit it, but oftentimes I place myself in the center of God's will instead of just trusting in him. I can make all things about me and how it affects me personally instead of what's best for others. Learning to trust God and his answer to our prayers in the midst of the storm is one of the hardest things that we as believers must learn to do. Trusting in him, even when the storm is raging, even when his response is not what we desire, it's the mark of our genuine maturity in Christ. If our response to God's answer to our prayers is to make it all about us, then despite the claims otherwise, perhaps we're not as mature in Christ as we thought we were. And maybe the Lord still has much work to do with our hearts. But do not be discouraged, my friends. We are all a work in progress. And the Lord is glorified even when we fall short. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 together, shall we? And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Point number two in our battles with pride, my friends, God is glorified in our weakness. Paul looked at that thorn as a real detriment to what he wanted to accomplish for God. In essence, he thought his pridefulness was too big even for God. He thought his ministry was severely hindered and that the damage done was insurmountable. But guess what? God had a different plan. God did not see Paul's weakness with pride as a hindrance, but rather an opportunity to display his magnificent grace in Paul's life. You see, that's what pride does. It makes you think that every time you fall short or every time you make a mistake or every time you respond poorly or unlovingly, that you just don't measure up. You wonder if God can really use you effectively anymore because of your constant battles with pridefulness. But notice what Paul says in verse 9. I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. It was not the thorn that God placed in Paul's life that was the problem. The thorn was just the means to recognize the real issue. See, God used that in his life to point to the real problem. And because of that, Paul learned from this and was used in an even mightier way in the future. Beloved, every time we face a battle in our life and the Lord points to our weaknesses, it can be a wonderful opportunity for us to rely less upon ourselves and more and more on God. And that's the very root of pridefulness, isn't it? I can do it. I don't need God. I got this. I got it. The idea that you can do this on your own, you got it all figured out, that your thinking is right, your actions are justified. But God graciously gives you an opportunity to move away from prideful thoughts and begin to recognize 
our complete and utter dependence on him for all things. Do you realize that you are to reign in the kingdom of self, my friends. And when we do that, we push back the kingdom of God. But if we recognize our dependence upon him and put away our pridefulness, God is glorified through our weaknesses. Okay. One more application as we draw to a close. Point number three. In our battles with pride, God's grace exactly what the Lord says to Paul, isn't it? He says what? My grace is sufficient for you. No matter what struggle you're facing, no matter what storm you're in, God's grace is sufficient for you. And when we try to face these struggles alone, we inevitably fall short. And when we don't recognize our own battles with pridefulness, we ignore the grace that's readily available for us. If we just try to handle things without God, and that always opens the door, doesn't it? Pride is sneaking. He only needs a little crack, doesn't he? He's in. And in the end, what Paul really needed was grace manifested in agape love, love of the will, love where we choose to love one another. That's really what he needed, isn't it? We all need this, my friends. We all need to be reminded of Christ's love for us, even in our weaknesses. Even when we fall short, his grace is sufficient for us. My friends, we all have thorns in our lives. And maybe some of those thorns have become evident in the events of last week. Maybe your own battles with pride have become evident to you as you look back at the selection cycle. Let me encourage you with this as we just like every rose has its thorn, every thorn has its rose. And the rose that we all enjoy as believers is the unconditional love of our Savior and the love we have for one another. Never forget that. No matter how difficult the trial, no matter how long the battle rages in your heart, God's grace is sufficient for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the grace that you have shed upon our lives so many times. And undeserving, unmerited. Lord, we, we don't deserve the grace you shed upon us. whatever that thorn is in our life, 
whether it's pridefulness or something else. 